chapter 12. To live the Christian life, my friends, to live the Christian life, you need to understand how the greatest privilege that we have in this life and the darkest struggles and the hardest discipline all go together. Those things don't seem like they go together, but they actually do. In fact, this entire passage is about living the Christian life, and it highlights all three of those things. Our greatest privilege, our darkest struggles, and our hardest discipline. And it highlights the tremendous privilege we have to be adopted as sons of the King, and all that that means for us. We'll hear more about that next week as we complete this passage, but that privilege we have as adopted sons of the king is also beset within the context of some of our greatest internal struggles and some of the hardest discipline that we'll ever encounter. It's all part of a good and wise and sovereign God's purpose for us as he providentially orchestrates all the obstacles and the experiences that we're going to encounter that we need to grow us, to sanctify us, to mold us and to shape us more and more into the image of his son. And as hard as that is for us to see, and even harder for us to accept sometimes, scripture is very clear that that is indeed the case. But the tension we encounter in our Christian walk as we grapple with these truths, we've seen played out many times in our lives and in the lives of others, haven't we? We've seen it, I think we've all seen it happen when a a new believer, filled with joy, joins the church, and at first all is well, all is going well, everyone rejoices in that person's salvation, and then the trial hits. It may be an illness. It may be the loss of a job. It could be a relational problem. It could be a conflict, maybe even a conflict with somebody either in the church or in their own family. And then all of a sudden that person starts missing church. And then they start kind of distancing themselves and trying to dodge any contact they might have with other believers. And soon they go back to the world, bitter against Christians, and even more bitter against God. What happened? Well, there could be many factors involved, but a major cause of that spiritual failure was that they did not understand how to properly respond to God's discipline. Understanding God's discipline of his children is one of the most practical truths in the Bible for you and I to understand and apply in our lives. And if you don't understand it, then you will not persevere when trials hit. Now, we've already seen that the author has repeatedly encouraged the church to persevere in their faith. 
despite some of the persecution they've already faced. And we looked at that a while ago, a few weeks back. And so since you're in Hebrews chapter 12, just flip back a page or two to Hebrews chapter 10. I just want to remind you of what this congregation that he's speaking to has already been through. So Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 32, the author of Hebrews tells them, But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. He says, listen, I know you've already been through trials. I know that you've already been suffering, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. They were mocking you. They were chastising you. They were excluding you from their community. And partly by becoming shares with those who were so treated. As you gathered around to those who were being mistreated, then you yourself became mistreated. Verse 34, for you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. So again, he's saying, listen, I know you've already been through trials. I know you've been publicly humiliated for your faith. Some of you were even put into prison. Some of you then gathered around those who were put into prison, and then you yourself were mocked and persecuted again for your faith. But then notice that he's not done yet. In verse 35, remember, he says, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a greater reward, for you have need of endurance. He says, listen, you're not done yet just because you went through a few trials in your life. There's more to come. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. He says, there's still more to come, my friends. There's still more that you need to endure. There's still more that you need to be prepared for in this marathon race that God has set before you. This is not a sprint where you go through a few obstacles, you jump over a few hurdles in your life, and then everything is smooth sailing from there. He wants to remind them. That this race called the Christian life has many steep hills, has many dark valleys, has lots of inclement weather. And that as a believer, you are not exempt from those trials. If our Lord himself was not exempt from those trials, why on earth would we believe that we should be? He's reminding them. This is an agonia. It is an agonizing marathon race. You need to endure all the way to the finish line. So to do that, then remember in verses 1 through 3, which we've looked at the last couple of weeks here, this actually, verses 1 through 3, is the encouragement section. It's in these three verses the author of Hebrews teaches us that in order to endure in our faith and to live the Christian life, First and foremost, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We need to fix our eyes upon Jesus, and we we need to prepare for the agonia. We need to prepare, prepare for this agonizing marathon race that God has chosen for us. 
He is letting us know that this is going to be a long race. It's going to be a difficult race. It's going to be an agonizing race that God has set before us. He's letting us know that we should not expect to win every battle that we face. That it's an unrealistic expectation. That every time that you're faced with a temptation or a trial, you will conquer it victoriously and come out with lots of rainbows and sunshine unscathed by the process. No. No, you're always victorious in Christ. But the process itself can be agonizing. Rather, he says, you should prepare like a marathon runner prepares. You should remember those who went before you and showed you that it is possible to finish the race. It is possible to finish the race in your enduring faith, holding and clinging fast to your faith all the way to the finish line. That's that great cloud of witnesses he was talking about. All of those heroes of the faith in Hebrews chapter 11 who finished the race clinging to their faith even though they never received the promise. He says, those, remember those. It is possible. God is not asking you to run a race that is impossible for you to run. Secondly, you should, you should shed every encumbrance, every weight is what that means, anything that will slow you down. And the encumbrances are things that are not necessarily bad in and of themselves, but they're things that slow you down. And then he says, get rid of anything that would enslave you. That's a sin. Sins enslave you, trap your heart, enslave your heart to those idols of your heart. He says, get rid of those. Shed the things that are slowing you down. Completely get rid of those things that are enslaving you. And embrace the course that God has chosen for you, trusting in him. Trusting that he is good. Trusting that he is wise. Trusting that he is sovereign over all things. Trusting him in all things. And we should keep our eyes and our focus on Jesus, the author and perfecter. The, the ultimate example of how to live out your faith, desiring to fulfill the Father's will in your life. He's the ultimate example. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. So now, with this encouragement behind us, and the author now wants us to remember a few more things that you're going to need to have endurance to finish this race. And so we're going to look at that in verse 4 in just a minute, but before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer, asking to bless our time together in his word. Heavenly Father, thank you, dear Lord, again for the immense privilege that I have to open up your wonderful truth. Pray, Lord, that we'll have open ears and open hearts, open eyes to your wonderful truth. As the Apostle James tells us, Lord, we don't want to just be hearers of the word. We want to be doers of the word. So as we listen to your word, Lord, we first apply it to ourselves. We ask us, Lord, what would you have me do with this truth? We don't look around at our neighbors. We don't look at everybody else. We don't think about somebody else in our family who really needs to hear this. First and foremost, Lord, we look at ourselves. We look at ourselves through the lens of you and your word. We apply it to ourselves. Help us to do that this morning, Lord. 
for your honor and your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4. Matter of fact, I want to pick it up in verse 3 for a little concept, for context. He said, For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Verse 4, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. So point number one in your notes, do not forget the Lord's suffering against sin. Do not forget the Lord's suffering against sin. So the author here, now remember in verses 1 through 3, he was really talking about this race, this marathon race. Well, now he switches metaphors in verse 4 to a boxer. So he goes now from a marathon runner to a boxer. This is where we get our word antagonist from the Greek word translated striving. So the first word I want you to see is the word resisted. You have not resisted. That means to stand firmly against something. To stand firmly against it. He says, you've not resisted. You've not stood firmly against this. Then he says this word, striving. You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. That word, striving, is the word, uh, it's uh, antagonizomai, which there'll be a quiz later means to fight agonizingly against. That means with everything you have. Just like it's an agonizing race, he says, you're in a bloody brawl here. Striving. Striving. Against what? Against sin. You need to stand firm against it, and then you need to fight with everything within you Do not succumb to this sin. But what exactly are they striving against? What what exactly are they resisting? What are they fighting so vigorously against? They're striving against sin. What is the sin he's referring to? He's referring to the sin in this battle against the temptation to walk away from their faith. Remember the context of Hebrews here. They were doing fine in their testimony, but then some persecution came along. Now some of them are thinking about going back to Judaism. He's saying, you've not yet resisted as much as you could yet. You think you have, but you're nowhere near resisting and standing against the sin of renouncing your faith in the Messiah. They were to stand firm against this and fight against this with everything they had. They were to stand firm and resist the temptation to return back to a works-based system. They were to stand firm in their faith in Christ and Christ alone for their salvation. But notice what he tells them. You've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood yet, have you? How'd you like to hear that? How'd you like to hear that in the midst of your trial? Pastor, man, things are really rough. I just got hit with some terrible news. That's all right. You've not, you're not bleeding yet. You're okay. Doesn't sound very comforting, does it? It kind of reminds me of when I was growing up, actually. My parents used to say, you know, we'd come and fall down. It's like, you know, 
Yeah, it's like, yeah, oh, you're okay. Just go, you know, wipe that off. I don't see any blood yet. You'll live. Go on. It's like, man, this thing's broken. There's no blood. But get back out there. You're okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm exaggerating, of course. What the author is telling them, and us as well, is that the Christian life is a fight for your faith. It's a fight that you have to stand firm against. It's a fight. It's a fight all the way to the end. To resist this sin, to fall away from your faith. To resist this sin, to choose another idol that you'll enthrone in your heart other than Jesus Christ. To resist this sin of falling away from the Lord Jesus. He's telling them, look, you need to stand firm for your faith. You need to resist against the temptation to flee and give up your faith. Just because your trials are increasing. He's saying none of you have resisted to the sin of unbelief to the point where you've had to shed your own blood. Oh, you've been persecuted. Oh, yes, you've been mocked. Some of you have been thrown in jail even for your faith. None of you have resisted against this sin of apostasy to the point where it's cost you your life. Incidentally, like it did many of those in Hebrews chapter 11. He said, none of you are at that point yet. Don't be surprised and don't be discouraged by that, but be prepared for the fight of faith. And here he's calling them to a life of faith. Calling them to accept the fact that it's going to be a challenging life. It's going to be a threatening life. Nobody has died yet in this community of believers. Eventually, of course, many will die, actually, in this congregation for their faith. But he's saying, you've not, you're not at that point yet. You've got a long road ahead of you in this fight. This is not a one-round boxing match. This is a 15-round. You need to keep fighting. As long as you have breath in your lungs, keep fighting for your faith. There's a story that was told by a widow who shared that she was in her second year of widowhood and she was struggling. And morning after morning, she said, my prayer life consisted of one daily sigh. Lord, I shouldn't be struggling like this. And then she said, I heard this still quiet voice from within me as I was reading God's word. And that voice said to me, why not? Why not? And that answer came to me. This unrecognized pride. Somehow I thought that a, a person of my spiritual maturity should be on. Should be beyond any kind of struggle like this. What a ridiculous thought. I'd never been a widow before. I needed the freedom to be a true learner. Even a struggling learner. And I realized that my struggle against sin was still ongoing, like always. At the same time, I'm reminded of the story of a man who took home a cocoon so he could watch the emperor moth emerge from the cocoon. And if you know anything about the emperor moth, they're beautiful, beautiful. And as the moth struggled to get through the tiny opening, the man, thinking he was helping out, snipped the opening a little bit so that the moth could get out easier. Well, the moth did. It emerged easily, but its wings were all shriveled up. 
You see, the struggle through the narrow opening is God's way to force fluid from the body into the wings. And that's how they get such a beautiful wing. So what the person thought they were doing to help the moth was actually hurting the moth. That merciful snip in reality was cruel. And I believe there's a tremendous application that destroys for us as well. Hebrews 12 describes the Christian life as a race that involves endurance. And we never get beyond the need of a holy striving against self and against sin. And sometimes the struggle is exactly what we need for us to be what God intends us to be. Let's move then to our second point. If our first point here was do not forget the Lord's suffering against sin. Our second point here in verse 5a and b. Point number two, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not make light of the Lord's discipline. So let's read that together, shall we? He says, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Some of your translations may have this as a rhetorical question. Have you forgotten? Others have it as a statement. You have forgotten, but the inference is the same. They had forgotten what the scriptures told them about living out a life of faith. And to demonstrate that, he's going to take them to the book of Proverbs, chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. And it's quoted for us there in verses in verse 5. Notice the word discipline in our text there. Usually when we think of discipline, we think of this as a negative. We'll say, I need to discipline my child. Actually, the Greek word here means a child training or education, instruction, correction. The idea denotes the idea of instruction or correction, and the purpose of this correction is to conform us more and more into the image of his son. The discipline of God or the correction we receive may not have anything to do with a specific sin, but more about a heart issue that needs to be corrected in order for you to become formed more and more into the image of his son. God uses temptations and trials in our lives to strengthen us in our commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. He uses trials and temptations to correct our thinking, to correct sinful beliefs and motivations. And we may despise every single minute of it during the trial, but all of us, if we're honest, beloved, will admit that we learn a lot more about our hearts during trials than we do when things are going swimmingly. And so the author of Hebrews reminds us to not take it lightly when the Lord corrects us. To do so actually causes us to respond in sinful ways when the Lord is trying to correct us. We could respond sinfully by doubting God's goodness and purpose in our lives. We could respond sinfully by unbelief or by substituting something else for God as a remedy for this correction. Lord, I don't like the correction that you're putting me under, and so I have formed another idol that I think will rescue me from your correction. Maybe it's my money. Maybe it's my health. Maybe it's my insurance. Maybe it's my... You fill in the blank. Substituting something else as a priority in your heart 
is something the Bible calls idolatry. We could respond by worry and anxious thoughts rather than trusting God. We could even apostatize and walk away from God when the Lord corrects us, as some did then and some do even today. Sometimes people can have this picture of God as an angry God sitting on a white marble throne with a long white beard and a lightning rod in his right hand, which is a lot closer to Zeus than it is to the God of the Scriptures. Some people think that he just sits up there looking for someone to mess up so he can throw the lightning bolt down there and zap us every time we mess up. But that reflects a very shallow view of the God who has revealed to us through his scriptures. When God corrects us, it's not for some sadistic pleasure like the Greek gods of mythology. He doesn't enjoy it or take pleasure in it, but he does it because he knows it's necessary for us. And my friends, whatever troubles come into your life, view them as a loving correction from God. Don't take them lightly as some unjust act against you, but rather take a good look at your heart and then ask the Lord what he would have you glean from these trials that will serve his purpose of conforming you more and more into the image of his son and will bring him glory. Beloved, many Christians have to be lovingly roughed up before they'll grow up, if you will. Although the Heavenly Father never allows His children to suffer needlessly, sometimes He lets them experience some hard knocks so they'll become mature believers. Sometimes we have to go through some bad weather, if you will, to stimulate the growth. And we can see this in God's creation. Scientists say that the seeds of some desert bushes need to be damaged by the storm before they'll actually germinate. They're covered with a hard shell that keeps out the water, and that allows them to lie dormant in in the sand for several seasons until conditions are just right for growth. And then when the heavy rains finally come, the little seeds are carried away in a flash flood. And as they're carried away in that flood, they're banging up against rocks and sticks and anything else that's in this, and gravel. And eventually, they settle in a depression where the soil has become damp to a depth of several feet. Only then do they begin to grow because the moisture is absorbed through all of those cracks and abrasions as they were hitting against the things along the stormy way. And similarly, our life's difficulties may be needed to mature us as well. That may hurt for a while. But if we yield to the Lord and we will find that these bruises, these scrapes, these scuffs mark the beginning of our spiritual advances, we may prefer to remain seeds, but God actually wants us to be fruitful trees. So point number one, do not forget the Lord's suffering against sin. Point number two, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. And that brings us to the final point here. Verse 5c, point 3, do not lose heart when the Lord does discipline you. So we've seen the first bad reaction to the Lord's correction, and that's to take it lightly. Here's the other way to respond poorly. Give up in despair. This is just as bad. Notice that word reprove. It means to convict or refute or rebuke. And actually this particular Greek word here, 
implies a rebuke that is well-deserved. It's a gentle reminder from the Lord that we need to get back on course in our Christian walk. We should not check out and sink into full despair every time the Lord corrects us. But that's the temptation, isn't it? And whenever God sends a trial or a temptation, whatever that may be, whether it's cancer, death of a dear loved one, or you lose your job or your children stray, that you lose heart and you faint and you stumble, as the writer of Hebrews says. Look at what the scriptures tell us about trials and temptations and afflictions and corrections. And I'm just going to show you two. Turn to Psalm 34, would you? Psalm 34, verse 19. Psalm 34, verse 19. Look at that. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. What is he telling us? You should expect afflictions, my friends. If you're one of the righteous ones, if you're one of those that God has set aside, he has set apart, if you're saved, if you're a believer... It's not that you might have afflictions. It's not that you could have afflictions. It's that you will have afflictions. And not just one. It's plural. Many afflictions. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But notice the second part of that verse. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. That's the Lord's promise. Not that you're exempt from trials and temptations. Not that everything will go swimmingly in your life. But that the Lord will be with you. And he will carry you through them all. Turn to Psalm 42, verse 5. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God. And I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. These are the two greatest dangers that can uproot your endurance in the Christian life. We either take them too lightly and respond sinfully, or we're crushed by it and we begin to lose hope in God, who is our only hope, incidentally, to get through these trials. Beloved, don't give up in the midst of the Lord's correction. He corrects us. He corrects us to strengthen us, not to make us weak. He corrects us to conform us to the image of his son, not to discourage us. He does it to build us up, not to tear us down. Trust in the Lord. Seek his face in the midst of his loving correction. Think of Naomi, the book of Ruth. Her husband and their two sons left Israel, moved to Moab because of a famine in Ruth chapter 1. One son married Ruth, the other married Orpah. Eventually, Naomi's husband and her sons died, and so she decided to return to Israel, but she felt that her daughters-in-law would be better off staying in Moab. So she tried to dissuade them from going with her by saying, in verse 13, No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. 
But God certainly was not against her, was he? When you read the book of Ruth, you'll see provision after provision after provision. And he proved this wonderfully by not only providing for her, but for Ruth when they returned to Israel. So much so that Ruth is actually in the line of Christ. My friends, you may be unemployed. You may be facing a very serious illness. You may have a disabled child or care for a loved one with Alzheimer's. God hasn't promised to keep us from those problems. But he has proven that he is always for us as believers. All we have to do is look at Jesus. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that nothing, not even death, can separate us from the love of Christ. The Lord is never against us, not even when he corrects us. He's always for us. I'm going to close here with a little story about Elizabeth Elliot. I want to share with you. Elizabeth Elliot, you may know, lost her first husband, Jim Elliot, to the Aka Indian Spears. Then she lost her second husband, Addison Leach, to cancer. And she was given a speech to the Urbana Missions Conference in December of 1976. And she told of being in Wales and watching a shepherd and his dog. And the dog would herd the sheep up a ramp and into a tank of antiseptic where they were to be bathed. And the sheep struggled to climb out, but the dog would snarl and snap in their faces to get them back in again. And just as they were about to come out of the tank, the shepherd used a wooden implement to grab the rams by the horn and fling them back into the tank and hold them under the antiseptic again for just a few more seconds. And Mrs. Elliott asked the shepherd's wife if the sheep understood what was happening. And the shepherd's wife said, what? They don't have a clue. And Mrs. Elliott said, I've had some experiences in my life that made me feel very sympathetic for these poor animals. I couldn't figure out for any reason for the treatment I was getting from the shepherd that I trusted. I didn't have a hint of explanation of what was going on. But then she pointed out that we still must trust our shepherd and obey him, knowing that he has our best interest at heart. As we see next week, my friends, our response, our response here to God's loving discipline is loving correction for us, must be to reverently submit, to trust him as our loving, sovereign, good, and wise Heavenly Father. To endure the struggle against evil, we must understand what Scripture teaches us about God's loving discipline. We'll look at that again more next week. I'm going to ask the men to come forward.